Oh, hi, yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, June 18th, 2021. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to join me earlier today. I was live on both the Lights on Data show as well as how to get an analytics job. And if you've made it this far in the day and you've decided to hang around and see me one more time, well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate having you guys here. Hopefully you guys got a chance to also tune into the podcast I released today with Jamie Woodhouse. We talked about the philosophy of sentientism. Had a great time chatting with him about that. Um, if you guys want to connect like hop into the the zoom room please do um i'll be posting a uh, link right there in the chat on all platforms i'm excited to have all of you guys uh join in when possible uh, we're live on twitch on youtube and on linkedin man super excited to have all you guys here um man so let's let's um let's start off with a question huh how about we how about we get this thing going with a uh with an open discussion i didn't get much time to think about it uh today but how about this let's you know what actually i saw an excellent video from from vin uh, a couple of days ago it was six things that he wishes he knew at the start of his career um i guess let's distill this down and just do the top one thing you wish you knew at the start of your career let's go ahead and let's get started with um let's go let's go to russell first then we'll, we'll go to vin and then we'll see what's up with uh with archer good evening all thank you Humphreys. um Glad you've been having a good day with all these uh, these other um, streams. By the way, I've not had a chance to catch with them given my um, uh, time zone, but I hope to catch up with them uh, in in record. So, the top thing I wish I'd have known when I was younger is don't pay too much heed to other people's opinions when they are away from your core purpose. You know, I, I found that the human um, the human psyche tends to want to diminish those that it finds challenging. So if you're doing something that's putting others outside of their comfort zone or challenging them um, and they feel um, at, uh, at risk from what you're doing, they seem to almost certainly want to immediately diminish. So I don't mean do not listen to criticism, especially if it's constructive, but try to be able to, to um, delineate between criticism that seems to be unfair, that's for the advantage of another single person or group of others versus um, criticism that you can actually take constructively and get better from. Um, especially if that's happening an awful lot, it can become quite a, a heavy wave crashing upon you and can get you down very much. So be very pragmatic in your view of criticism. I like that. That's that's great, great tip. So uh, just to, to reiterate the question, the top one thing you wish you knew at the start of your career, this is just to play off a video I was watching from Vin the other day. He talked about the top six things he wished he knew at the start of his career. Uh, Vin, I know you did. I know you did this video already, but let's distill it down, man. What's like the top one thing? I think the top one thing would be that all the technology skills you think matter are just transient and long-term career longevity wise. It, you really have to look beyond technical skills because if you just do technical skills, you're going to, it's like being on a treadmill because you have to run really, really fast just to stay in the same place. And technology continues to move, continues to advance. And if all you're doing is working your technical muscles, then you are only going to get so far in your career. At some point, you have to transition because the number of opportunities that you're competing for just start getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So the thing I wish I'd have understood very early on is that, yeah, technical skills are critical for the first five to 10 years of your career. But as soon as you hit year five, the things that begin to define your career and either limit it or really turbo boost it are very, very little to do with technical skills. It's a lot of how you can apply those technical skills. But beyond that, there's a whole lot of, we call them soft skills, but they're not soft. I mean, that's what makes your career boost ahead. And you get paid a lot more for your softish skills than you do for your technical skills in the long run. I mean, it's definitely like a misnomer. I don't know why they call it soft skills. Um, I mean, they, they are hard because like, it's not, it's not something that you could actually be directly taught. It's something I think that has to be learned through experience, which is, I mean, that's hard in itself. Um, I, had a, I had a question from somebody earlier today. I was on, you know, doing a bunch of stuff, LinkedIn live and somebody said something um, 
about or the question they asked uh, that we didn't get around to to discussing i saw in the chats afterwards was how can you communicate to hiring managers or whoever during the course of an interview that you can learn any tool if they're you know if they're listing specific tools on their on their on or specific tech skills on their job posting how can we communicate to them that actually you know what i know you want these things i might not have exactly these specified skills but um i can i can learn them does that question make sense Vin? yeah it does i you've got two hiring my you know manager mindsets one of them seriously you can't convince and so you the first thing you have to do is if you see the the skills at the very top and there's no real description of what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis your hiring manager is somebody who doesn't really think that far past uh, you know a programming language name a bunch of frameworks a database you know so on and so forth and that's the person you can't convince their fixed mentality. They don't understand that people can learn. They themselves think that they've basically maxed out. They're at the top of the field. They will never get any better. Therefore you come in fully baked or you don't come in at all. And there's that mindset and you can read the job description and almost tell immediately that you're dealing with somebody with that mindset. They're just not worth it. Just don't bother trying unless you've got the capabilities they're looking for. Just don't. The ones that spend more time talking about the job and what you're going to do and what you're going to make and the outcomes that you're accountable for, those are the ones that already sort of know that you're going to grow into the role, that nobody's fully baked. And so they're going to be more open to this. One of the things you want to have, especially early on in your career, is if you look at your projects, talk about how you had to learn something on the fly as part of that project. And you've basically done that. You've said, hey, I am here. And look, even over the course of this little personal project, I went from here to here. And so you've told the hiring manager that that's something that you're capable of and something also that you know you're expected to do. Awesome, man. Thank you very much for that, Vin. Uh, Great, great tip there. Uh, Vivian, how's it going, Mark? What's going on, man? Uh, So just to reiterate the question, it's like the number one thing you wish you knew at the start of your career. Um, So kind of you could play with that question however you'd like, um, because I'd love to get a variety of responses. We'll go to Archer, then Mark, and then Vivian and shout out to everybody watching on LinkedIn and on YouTube and also on Twitch. If you guys want to join in on the fun, please, it's an open office hour. I got the link right there in the description. So please do join us. I'd be happy to have all of you folks here. Um, Arthur, let's hear from you. So uh, I would say number one thing is definitely that some things are more important than doing the work sometimes. Uh, I'm, a com- I'm a computer science teacher. So I came in and I was like, I have to get these kids to learn everything. They have to, you know, do the work. They have to do everything. Uh, and over time, I realized sometimes, you know, their mental health isn't really there, especially during COVID. I think that the mental health of your team, how everyone feels, the morale, kind of having the empathy is a lot more important sometimes than just being able to do the work and get through the day. I think how everyone feels, how everyone thinks about, you know, the company uh, is, you know, way, way up there. A lot more than how I treated it when I first started. Right on, man. Thank you very much. Uh, Vivian, let's hear from you on this and then we'll go to Mark after that. And by the way, guys, uh, questions are open. If you guys want to shoot me a question in the chat, whether you are on a any one of the streaming platforms, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitch, um, go ahead, type your question out, and we will get it into the queue. Uh, alternatively, man, you guys can just hop in and join us right here. I would love to have you guys uh, in the in the room with us. Vivian? Um, can Mark go first? I'm still formulating my answer in my mind. Yes, absolutely. Mark? Um, for this question, I, I like had an answer instantly pop up. And I think, I think for me, for, for my career, which I knew earlier was like the importance of your direct manager, um, for your, for your success in your career. Um, so my first job as a data scientist was rough. Um, my colleagues were like really supportive, like, wow, Mark, you're crushing it. But my direct manager, just like, we were not gelling. And she was like, Mark, you're not doing well. And I'm like really confused because my colleagues are saying otherwise. And so it really took it personally. I was like, maybe I'm not cut 
out for this data science stuff, right? Eventually get laid off from that job. And I start my current job at Humu. I have an exceptional manager and my career is 10X, right? And it made me realize I'm like, oh, it wasn't me. Like I'm more than capable of learning the skills and adapt. It's just, is it is it the right fit between you and the company or the right fit between you and your manager? And that can really dictate a lot. And so I think the key thing for me from that experience was like, don't ever really take it personally. It could just be a bad match. Still continue on your goal and your dream. Um, you know, you just have to work work at it. And so a key part of that interview process, maybe not picking the first job possible, pick the first job where you know you have a good match or you won't always know, but you feel pretty confident that you're interviewing them back. And you're like, this is going to be a good fit where I can grow in my career. So when you have those situations, right, you're talking about you had kind of a, a difficulty with your manager. Like I've been in that situation as well. Um, back when I was a biostatistician, my first manager there was like a, a dick, like I hated the guy. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know what it was. And that relationship never got better. And unfortunately, I had to bear his uh, just bad attitude for like three years before finally things changed. Wow. Yeah. And it was horrible, man. Um, like, And it just it ruined my outlook on a lot of things. Or ruin my self confidence in myself and just my ability to do do the work. Um, like, how do you how do you deal with that, man? How, how can how can we deal with like these you know uh, the the diminisher type of manager, like the manager that actively or at least seems like actively is is trying to <laughs> yeah. to like hold you back. Definitely. Um, I think for me, there's there's two aspects. It's like one, like I you, you have your job at the end of the day, and this is coming from being at startups where I know any day I can be let go because the company went under or like things change really so quickly. So I'm like at any day I can I can lose my job and I'm okay with that. And I think Ben Taylor says this all the time is like having market security over job security. And that's really stuck with me since he said that. Because I think that's a key thing. It's like that gives you the confidence to know if it's not it's not a good fit or won't work out you still have market security and can like find another opportunity. The other component of dealing with that is like having a strong support system. Um, so during that time, again, like hide the pandemic, <laughs> I know I'm about to get laid off. My friend's like, yo, bro, they're going to lay you off soon. <laughs> um, and I know that's coming up and like having a strong support system. My wife holds me down all the time. She believes in me before I believe in myself all the time. She always bets on me. And like, if my wife can bet on me, I can bet on myself. And so, you know, maybe you don't have a partner, maybe it's a best friend or a parent or a mentor, just like having that support network to really build you up when you're at your lowest. I think that's so key. And I really owe it a lot of my success to my wife for, for really popping me up. Yo, shout out to the wives out there. Romy, what's up? We're celebrating uh, six years of marriage tomorrow. Um, damn, can't believe it's been six years already. Uh, but yeah, dude, having a good wife is, uh, is key man having a having a solid partner uh vivian let's hear from you and shout out to everybody else uh marina i'd love to hear from you if you'd like to uh we'd also um love to to get your questions in guys so if you guys got questions put them right there in the chat i've got mark in the queue there already and just looking around all the uh, different social media platforms if you guys got questions go ahead and type them right there into the chat go for it, vivian um okay well i have a couple of things so i kind of wanted to say something about the bad managers because i've been in that situation And I definitely like followed all the advice of like, stick it out. And like bad managers always find a way to like work themselves out of the company or whatever, you know, like they'll tie, he'll tie his own news kind of thing is like what my, what other people would always tell me. And it don't, don't do that. Okay. Like for all the people out there thinking like, no, I have to be practical and the money and blah, blah, blah. Like, honestly, don't just like, if you're in a position where like, it's honestly that toxic, just leave. You'll be better off for it. You'll, you'll bounce back. You'll figure it out. Like, because the longer you stay, then the more like psychologically damaging it's going to be and the harder it is going to be to like bounce back. And like, that's something that happened to me. I really wish I had just, you know, back when I realized that it was too far gone, just left and I would have been scared out of my mind, but I would have bounced back a lot quicker. So honestly, like, Anyway, that's just advice if anybody else is out there struggling with that. Um, But also as far as things that I wish I knew before or when I started, um, I guess the thing that I thought of was just that like basics are enough, like that sometimes um, I felt like I had to consume the whole internet. I had to know everything. I had to like know all the things before I could legitimately be considered like a data professional or whatever. But that's not true. Like you, the basics are enough. Like, and if you master the basics, everything else will come. And like, and and also, if you know the basics, then like the other things, you'll learn them really fast. You know, you'll be able to like dive into something you've never done before, 
and learn it really fast and and do it pretty well even from a first shot like if you have that foundation so like I don't know just don't I, I guess that's what I wish I had known is like I don't need to get lost in the weeds I don't need to try to like consume everything you know I don't need to try to like do everything and and have experience doing all of the things before I'm allowed to like feel like I don't know I'm and competent and can get a job and stuff I would say that's the exact same thing I would have told myself, dude. I remember when I first like, you know, started to go into machine learning and mind you, I've got graduate degrees in math and statistics, but I went down the weeds to the extent where I started like learning about logic gates and how like computation actually happens. I was, I don't know, I was, I don't know how I ended up there. It was just like this YouTube spiral, just sending me towards like some weird stuff. I ended up, yeah, I ended up in, in a, MOOC that was Python, but specifically for testing circuits and logic gates, because I thought that I needed to know how to do that um, if I really wanted to understand how to make machine learning algorithms fast. And I don't know how that happened. I don't know why. I, I, I you know what I mean? It's weird. Um, but Marina, let's let's hear from you. Uh, so I'm, I'm not gonna add anything new. I think um, I mean both they said uh, kind of like really good points, but I'm gonna echo on Mark thing. Um, his points. I think having mentors is, uh, to me, like having somebody that um, is going to be there and it's going to, like people that you can ask, right? Or you call it mentors, supporters, and not just one, right? If it can be in your company, it's a good thing because if you want to stay there or, or see a different like perspective of the company, I think it's very important. But also like outside in your same field or like covering several, um, I would say, um, like places where you need to grow, right? So somebody that, you know, is going to ask you about uh, what your future plan, like, you know, like covering several things, but like having mentors, um, like taking care that um, you have uh, like a plan for the future type of thing. You you have options or, right? So to me, I think it's, it's important. I'm not one person or su- you call it supporters, then, then it's supporters, somebody that you can, you know, or people that you can talk and uh, you can have advice from that they would tell you, you know, like, okay, you can hold on this position because I don't know your personal situations or, you know, it's time to leave. Sometimes, you know, it just, you can't really, um, yeah, I think, you know, having that uh, mentorship is very important. Yeah. Somebody who will openly share the mistakes they've made. So you do not have to go and make those exact same yeah. mistakes yourself. That is uh, crucial. So Mark, I know I got you in the queue for some questions, but I got some questions coming in through LinkedIn. If you don't mind that. Uh... I don't, I don't mind at all. All right, cool. So there's uh, some, some good questions. And, and by the way, friends, feel free to join us. Um, but uh, Negan, is asking how important did you find the math foundation in your career advancement so that's that's interesting right so not necessarily breaking into the field but actually advancing throughout your career um and then she also wants to say please share your background in science um so i mean two questions there i think that first one how important did you find the math foundation in your career advancement for advancement i don't think it really matters i think for breaking into the field and for being able to execute on your job that's super important but for advancement i guess that depends on which route you go right what if you're going like the people manager type of route that doesn't really matter that much there but if you're going like you know the the what's it called distinguished fellow or principal you know type of route it might be more important um, but having a solid foundation i think is super uh, important in in anything vin and um, let's let's hear from you on this i think it's kind of big i mean not really disagreeing with you i gotta say if you want to get a promotion nobody's asking what math you took no one's no, no one's gonna ask you before you get a promotion to manager if you could do a little bit of you know pdes that's not happening so it, you know when it comes to to is that going to be the differentiator between you getting held back and you getting moved forward to the next step? No, but it's how you are able to apply math and how you're able to use it to better understand not only what you're working on, but what everybody else is working on too, because that's one of the things most teams are missing, especially in smaller companies, is somebody who can do a review of just the foundational concepts behind everybody's work. Because half the time, when I've come in to clean up stuff, it's because I find the problem in about 20 minutes and it's just a stupid error, you know, and it's the same thing that I could make by myself. If I didn't have someone else look at what I did and go, come on, man, you know, and that's it's So you really need it. And especially as you start getting into 
sort of a technical lead position, you really need to be able to review everyone else's work. That makes you hugely valuable. And that's a way to advance. I mean, that's a career path. You go from technical lead to pretty much wherever you want to, because the company realizes like if you leave quality degrades so fast <laughs> that they're willing to do a lot to move your career forward. And so, like I said, you're never going to get a math test in order to get that promotion, but being able to apply your math skills and use them to help build better product, no matter what shape and size and form that takes, that's a career path. Nice, man. Thank you very much for that perspective. And definitely, you know, Vin's got tons of experience. I would recommend following his YouTube channel, The High ROI Data Scientist. It is a a lot of good stuff there. Does, uh, does anybody else want to chime in on this particular topic about the math skills needed for advancement? Um, um, if, if you do, please go for it. I have a, a comment on that. Um, so like for, for context, I like failed a lot of math classes in community college and it took me a while to, to get decent at math. Um, so I'm, it's like not my strong suit, but the thing is that I know how to Google really well and like apply and learn really quickly. And so like, that's really important. And I'm like upfront, I'm like, I don't know this. I just learned it 30 minutes ago, but the source says it's correct. And my manager says it's correct. But I think what, where I play to my strengths. And so I'm speaking from someone who's currently trying to gun for a promotion right now. Um, and the key thing, the skill that I rely on all the time is, and for context, my, my background, I have a master's in science and community health prevention research, really strong background in clinical research. My background's uh, experimental design. So I know how to take a business question uh, or a data question and to set it up in a way where I know how to set up experiment, how to test out hypotheses or find causality. And I lean into that. So like, I may not be the most technical math person, but I set up structure for you to get an answer um, and present that. And so being able, especially in a startup, really take really abstract things and put structure around it and get an answer that's what's helping me get my manager's attention to be like, all right, you're on track to, to make something happen. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Mark. And I mean, the, the next question that Nagan had was, can you please share your background in science? And I think you definitely answered that with your response there as well. Um, I've got it. I mean, my background isn't, clinical design, but I've worked as a clinical trial statistician for nearly five years. And I guess that's like the sciencey background that I have as well. But mine was just, I studied math and statistics in, in grad school. Um, and I guess that the only science experience I had is that clinical trials type of work. But I'm wondering, um, let's hear from from Marina. I guess Marina is like an actual scientist here. So uh, what, what's your science background? And then let's hear from uh, Vivian and then Arthur on this. Or if you guys want to touch the, uh, the other question, which was about uh, math foundation and career advancement, uh, then... Uh, then we'll hit on a, a couple of uh, questions here at LinkedIn. And the Mark, we will get to yours. You just put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> and I, I was writing something. Can you repeat the question? It's about so the, the science background. Yeah, yeah. What was your background with science? Uh, my background? Um, so, I, um, so I did theoretical chemistry and I did physics. And then my PhD, I know that the other day everybody was talking about the titles. I feel like I should erase my so it was um, like technology transfer, um, kind of like signal processing technology, like, and then uh, so apply like physics or uh, to like making a device um, uh, to measure properties of single cells. So then I had to incorporate biology um, to all the, you know, like my, to my thesis, to all the research that I was doing, which was kind of like signal processing, like modulation of signals and so on. So then the rest of my, like this rest was, uh, I did that like um, basic research at, um, like at the, um, one of these small universities, like that one at Harvard, right? <laughs> so I did, you know, some, some of the research I did, um, like applying um, some of these principles, quantitative science type of thing to, so, you know, to, to single cells or to like infected cells and things like that. Um, I hope this answered your question. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, just that small little local college up the street. I know. Harvard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vivian and Arthur, let's hear from, from you guys. And it could be on either point. Um, the points that uh, was, Negan was asking was either just how important do you think math is in career advancement and share your background in science. Then after we get to Negan, then Negan or Negan, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. You can just jump in the room and tell me how to pronounce it. That'd be great too. Um, after that, we'll go do Mark's question. And then we got questions uh, on LinkedIn from Akash and Twinkle, which we'll get to um, after Mark's question. Go for it. Um, so I got my degree in biology 
And yeah, I guess I don't know that I have like a super fresh perspective to share here, but I definitely agree with both Ben and Mark a lot that like I, w- I was actually always really good at math, but I really liked the application of math. And I think that's what's much more important. So that's like something I always liked about doing science was that I actually got to like apply the math to a thing I was doing. Um, and I think that that's like a lot more important in data science for sure. It's like actually understand what you're doing. Like the math is a tool in, at least in my mind, the math is a tool to like find, you know, insights or get results or whatever. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess that I just, that's, that's my hot take. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Arthur, also, Eric Sims, what's going on, man? Good to see you here. So I actually also majored in math and statistics. Uh, I don't have any science background. Everything I kind of just picked up uh, online. I think that uh, while math is important, I think that it's more about what you can do with it and how you use it. No one really cares about how well you can, you know, crunch the numbers as well as like, what can you do with the results of that? How can you analyze it? What can, you know, why are you crunching them? So you understand why you're doing this and what you can do with it. And how can you actually take those, you know, the math and convert it to some kind of, you know, either increasing revenue or some kind of more information, some kind of actual actionable change to the company or to society or whatever it is your field that you're in. Awesome, man. Thank you very much, Archer. And uh, um, hopefully, Megan, that answered your questions. We're going to move on now to Mark's question. Then after that, we'll go to the questions here from Akash and Twinkle. And if you guys in the room here have questions, let me know. I'll go ahead and add you to the queue. Mark, go for it. I, I for once, have an applied data science question and not a career question, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Um, I, uh, from, I talked to Greg recently about like how do you come up with ideas and like figure out what would be a high ROI thing. And I've been talking to our customer success team a lot, um, trying to figure out like, all right, they they have some needs or expanding customers and like handling our customers, delighting our customers is really important. And so I was like, what if I can connect our Zendesk ticket data to our product data to essentially predict customer health or like predict when a customer will reach out. Um, so for example, like engagement, like like this particular customer um, always reaches out when engagement goes below this level. And so we can see a trend going that way. I can give a heads up to customer success saying like, hey, something might be happening soon. Be prepared so you can better serve this customer. I'm still in the raw idea phase for sure. But I'm just curious if anyone's ever worked with kind of uh, like customer support ticket data and, you know, what, what are some things that you've kind of seen when working with that kind of use case of like um, kind of pitfalls or potentially things to check out? Maybe I'm trying to pursue a problem that's actually really hard. Um, I'm guessing it is. There might be a simpler way between that. Um, and I'm still in the exploration phase of like, is it feasible? Can I do it? But I figured I'll talk to the great minds of the artists of data science to really jumpstart that that exploration phase. Yeah, I'll definitely punt this one to, to Vin. But before I do that, um, that I was reading this book and I'm interviewing the author, Alyssa uh, Simpson Roshberger, and this is Real World AI, a really, really good book. And it's um, one of the things she was talking about, they were talking about this case study with the uh, Autodesk and how they were really trying to help um, make their product better. And they really honed in on one particular thing. And, and it was um, customer queries for resetting passwords because it was taking far too long to reset passwords. And they were wondering if they could do something to reduce that down, maybe even make it self-service. And they're talking about the the importance of honing in on that question and having an exact kind of question it is that you want to answer and, and being able to quantify the results. And um, uh, it, it's escaping me that the details, but essentially they use like a NLP model, um, which would then uh, immediately redirect somebody instead of going to like the, the uh, ticket desk for manual processing, it would just take them to like a, a self-help type of page. Um, but let's hear from Vin on this one, uh, the high ROI data scientist himself, because uh, this is interesting. I've never worked on anything like this, and I think it's going to be fascinating to hear the results. So are you doing usage? Are you doing customer success like customer buying? Or are you doing customer help as in, um, you know, I've got a problem, the, the I don't know how to use it or the product's not working? Yeah. So to give, give further context, customer success. So um, preventing churn, we have enterprise customers. Um, and so, you know, for, for smaller customers, they may not, they might go to like an FAQ, but for like our large enterprise, you know, they have the white glove kind of, kind of ordeal. 
And so they, they, if they see something they don't like or confused about, they're going to be talking customer success. And what spurred this was we had an incident happen for one of our customers and I was just involved because I just want to learn more about their use cases. And I was like, wow, they're spending hours discussing how to navigate this. It would be cool if they could just prepare and they weren't reactionary. And so that's kind of the, the kind of the, the aha moment. I'm like, maybe I could do something to help them out with this. So I'm stealing this from Walmart. I mean, sorry, this is my idea. I came up with this. <laughs> I didn't... So first things first, don't wait for it to get to the desk. You want to put hooks into your apps, into what they're actually using. Segment your users. Now you've got smart users. I'm not 100% sure what I'm doing, but I'm pretty smart. And I've never tried this before, but I'm a software developer. I read no manuals. And so I'm going to just dive straight in. And so segment, you know, kind of into different buckets, what kind of customer is actually using. And so segment your users and then follow them, you know, like your Facebook around your application figure out how much time it's taking them to complete a particular task, because that's probably your easiest success metric to start out with. You'll have a ton of other ones after that. But the first one is how long does it take someone who's just learned the system to do this task? How long does it take the average, you know, somebody that's kind of in the middle been using this for X amount of time is the amount of time that it takes somebody who just figured it out to somebody who's been using it for six months decreasing? Is it increasing? And then look at, and this is going to be your biggest indicator that something's wrong. Look at your power users. Look at those users that are aces on the system. They're probably the people who are on that system most and who do that particular function or role or use case or journey or whatever it is most frequently and see if the amount of time it takes them to do that thing decreasing or increasing. If it starts increasing, obviously you're about to lose people. And so there's these kind of intuitive things that you can do where you're following people around. Like I said, don't wait for it to get to the desk where you're following people around your application, watching what they do, how long it takes them to do it. Task abandonment's going to be the next thing that you're going to do where you're watching them do something. And then they're like, give up halfway through a workflow and never finish it. And so there's a bunch of these different flows that you're going to start following. And that's the data that you're going to use in order to predict what your churn is. Because the longer it starts taking them to do things, the less engaged they are with the platform. That's your early warning system. Damn, that was it. Awesome, Ben. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark, that was, would you- That's really helpful. I didn't even, I didn't even really consider that, that component because I'm looking at product usage, but now that you say that, I'm like, actually, I should look at like the main report that they're going to have questions about and how long were they on that report. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, re- that's really good. I think we have logs for those. So when we think about that, right, that the, that data that will be coming in, is it like, like I don't know what else to call it, like click stream data, I guess, or just usage data? And it's just going to be one row of data per action that the person took during the app, right? Uh, what are some like features that, you know, one or two features you think that would be really helpful? I know you mentioned uh, time between activities, time uh, spent on, you know, an activity. Um, what are some other features we can possibly engineer from that, Vin? You know, it's really learning curve. That's the biggest one. And, you know, obviously Walmart, I mean, I came up with that and, and figured this out on my own. Uh, so the, the learning curve, the shorter the learning curve for a particular feature, the more likely it is to be adopted and the more likely it is to be successful just across the board. And this is one of those where you're like, wait, this stuff's all common sense. And the first six months that you do this, you're going to realize that the majority of your work's kind of common sense stuff. You may not even need a model around this. What you're really trying to do with the predictive side of it is confirm your assumptions because your customer success team probably has like these metrics that they live and die by. And what you'll end up doing is refuting a lot of those, which is going to be hard because somebody's career is baked on a dashboard someplace. (laughs) And so you're going to be threatening that person's child. So thankfully I'm the one creating their dashboards right now. So I I have that control, thankfully. (laughs) Yeah, and the other thing you're going to realize is that there's a lot of new metrics that they can take a look at that are, you know, further out predictors of, and it's not just going to be churn. You also want to start predicting, are they going to re-up? Are they going to increase? Because I don't know how your pricing is, but are they going to go from one tier to the next? Is there an opportunity with some of the challenges that they're having? And this is going to be the next piece that you're going to predict. And you're going to start tying this into marketing because you're 
essentially going to uncover needs before the marketing team even knows that they're there or even understands it's time to reach out to them. And it's not just going to be to prevent them from leaving. A lot of these metrics around usage, adoption, um, and struggle, for lack of a better term, are going to indicate business problems. And if they all of a sudden start coming off of a particular workflow, that means their workflow's changed. If they start doing different things on the system, if their usage patterns change, that's a change in business needs. And those are all indicators of it's time for marketing to reach out and to start talking to them about what's changed. And you're going to find out months before anyone else is getting this information. So it's gold. Just watch usage. And like I said, learning curves. When learning curves start getting really long, something you've implemented went sideways. Mm-hmm. And no, that's that's a really good point. And like we're in, we're in like growth mode, so we're like throwing out features every other month. And so being able to track that that learning curve component that's that's a really big piece I haven't really thought of. And that's that's really great. Yeah, because that learning curve piece, you'll realize quickly that when you train someone and they abandon a feature, that's like the most insightful thing that you can see is okay. So this person yeah. knows how to use it. They used it and they went nah. That's a, that's one of those features where yeah. you're like, I think we're killing this branch. Yeah. And just another thing, we our team has an exceptional UX re- researcher. I rely on her a lot. For this type of use, use case, how would you use a UX researcher to help you uncover kind of a qualitative oh. side of things? Wow, that's a lot. I would, that would be a month just by itself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially if you have a UX research. Ah, that, I've never had like access to one full time. I've had, you can ask email questions, but I've never had like full on access like that. That I don't know. Uh, it's gold. I like yeah. jump into their UX calls all the time and get uncovered. Like how, like the metrics I build, I get to go on calls and see like how users are actually using it. And it's terrifying to listen, but then it's also really good. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's a great question. That could go in. A, I'd, I'd have to think about that, but that could go in a lot of different directions. I, okay. like I said, I've never had full access to somebody who was a UX researcher. I've had people like you know who are design experts, but not not like that actual research role. I've been able to ask email questions. <laughs> but yeah, and no, she knows how to awesome. use SQL, so she's data driven. She's like amazing. Wow. Ah, no, that sounds oh. great. That's a great opportunity. Cool. Maybe you make a post or YouTube video about it and I'll, I'll watch it later. I'll think about it. I got to think that through. I don't know. What would I ask? That'd be, that'd be a long meeting. I'll tell you, that wouldn't go over. <laughs> and to, to when you talk about workflow, I'm just trying to understand how we can like see the workflow and understand how things are moving. Is like, is that where the sinky diagram kind of comes in place where you're seeing like the flow of clicks and how people are moving through the app usage is that like a good use case for that sort of yeah i mean it's more than click stream because it's not just what they're clicking it's what they're not that they should be Mm. it's what they're skipping over that you expected to be part of the process what you have to realize is you're going to have different users do the same work thing in different ways because businesses don't actually understand their own processes and there's in some businesses, you know, there's high levels of quality, but in most businesses, four people doing the same thing, using the same software will do it in two or three different ways. And it really depends on, you'll find out who trained who. When you find people that do things identically, you'll be able to say, okay, senior, junior, oh, so you trained. And it's funny, the types of insights and realizations you come to, and you also get a little bit of a peek into the dysfunction behind the scenes. So when you say click through you know the click stream you're expecting a particular workflow but the workflow is inconsistent and so you almost have to create this net that just catches everything and not just what did they click but also what didn't they click that you expected them to how long between clicks you're actually capturing time between and did they bounce between applications because yours is probably not the only one in their ecosystem. And so you'll have them bouncing between sometimes two, three, maybe even more different tools, copying and pasting back and forth. There's bots that you're going to have to account for and you'll actually capture bot behavior and think it's a user. And it will be the most confusing thing you've ever seen because you will have one just godly user (laughs) flying through the system. <laughs> and if you aren't expecting it, you'll be like, what, who is this person? And so you, know, you have bots in there too. There's not really a stream or a process. You have to f- basically, like I said, create this net because from client to client to client and user to user, team to team, it's going to be all over the place. And so until you have an idea of some structure 
like some rules, you almost have to throw out all the rules and just say, okay, we're collecting everything until I know what I should be collecting. Um, thank you very much, Finn. Appreciate that. Uh, Eric, tell us about this uh, resource you got right here in the uh, in the chat so that people uh, listening can uh, tune into that as well. Also, ladies and gentlemen, we are debuting the Beardless Ben Taylor. Uh, you saw it here first. <laughs> yeah, so Chris, uh, Christy Wirth is a data scientist at a company called Zapier. And uh, she did a presentation a little while back. So, um, and Mark, this may or may not like fit exactly what you need, but she did a presentation a while back about um, basically a bot that she built because like what um, you were saying earlier, it was spending, they were spending way too much time just having to like figure out what, what tickets were about and things like that. And so they just, she just has the um, presentation that I dropped here is basically an explanation of kind of how she used, you know, spacey and other things to create uh, the flow for it. And then she has the code and the gist that I put there. So, yeah. So if you look up Christy worth um, on SlideShare or on GitHub, she definitely has some useful stuff there. So I would recommend checking it out pilfering as you need. Awesome. Thank you very much, Eric. So let's go to uh, some questions we got here from, uh, from, LinkedIn user Akash. Uh, we'll go to Ben Taylor for, for this one. Uh, Akash is asking, apart from the hard skills like Python, SQL, Tableau, and ML models, what are some key things slash perspective that a data scientist needs on a day-to-day basis? Any tips on how to develop such understanding slash perspective? Uh, also, can you share any daily best practices for data scientists? Um, let's go to uh the beardless Ben Taylor for this one, as opposed Still to the beard. <laughs> uh, so, so the first part of the question, they're asking for what, what skills are needed outside of the, the basics that they led with like SQL. What maybe just start with the opener, like the first yeah. uh, part from all the hard skills, just what are some key things that a data scientist needs on a day-to-day basis? So obviously like, you know, we need those tools, Python, SQL, Tableau, ML. Um, apart from that, like, is that all there yeah. is to data? Yeah. Science? Uh, so soft skills. Um, it, it's really funny. I think, there can actually be different types of data scientists. So I'm amazed how many flavors there are. So you can hire a data scientist that does really, really deep research. They don't have to interact with normal people. And then you can hire a data scientist that works as like a sales engineer where they're, they have to meet with customers on a regular basis. And I've learned they're, they can be useful for different things. So I, I guess the, the super skill, <laughs> the super skill to appreciate would be to realize that your paychecks are not free and you should have urgency and also a sense of mapping to value all the work that you work on. So if you build a model, you shouldn't say, Say, look, I did my project. Like at school, school, you say, look, I did it. What do you think? And you should really have this obsession around value. And I think that'll play out really well in your career because people will, that's what people want, right? They want managers and leaders that understand that payroll's not free. Sorry, I'm, I'm ruined after doing a startup. <laughs> no, dude, that's actually really, really powerful. I like that your paychecks aren't free. Uh, map everything to value. I, I like that. Let's, uh, let's, hear from, uh, let's hear from Eric on this one. And then uh, after Eric, let's hear from uh, Mark, then, then Vin. And uh, again, if anybody has questions, whether in the Zoom room right here, let me know, or on any one of the platforms that we're streaming on, let me know. I'm keeping an eye out on everything. Eric, go for it. Yeah. So um, one thing that <clears throat> came to mind fairly quickly is like the ability to think across disciplines, <clears throat> because like I started off the day today with a meeting with a product manager and we were talking about one thing. And then like right after that, I dropped into the uh, a meeting with the product marketing manager. And so it's like, we're like going to take off one hat, put on the other, and it's all about numbers, but these numbers don't like they kind of touch, but some of them don't. And so being able to just like think across rather than, you know, like, so I'm in like a matrix organization. Right. And so functionally I'm in analytics, but like, as far as a product vertical, it's like, I'm like all small business stuff right now. And thinking in the terms of those and, and, and being able to talk about different marketing channels. And um, I was just saying, you know, mentioning to my wife, like a couple of days ago, I was like, if I hadn't had any experience at all in marketing before getting into this role, I would be even more confused than I am right now because they're throwing out terms like, you know, SEM and display and native and, you know, just like very, these are like very general marketing terms. But if all you know is like the sliver of the analytics side of things, then you might be lost when, when talking across other verticals. So like, like I really enjoy listening to, you know, the occasional marketing podcast or sales podcast episode, even just like kind of get 
get exposure to like terminology of other areas because it's so helpful to like hear how other people think and, and the, the words that, you know, are, are important to them, you know, the words, topics, the metrics, all that. So that's one I throw out there. And I will just say Excel still has its place. <laughs> I've been using cube, like Excel cube data this week so much. It has saved me a ton of time rather than writing all of my own queries. Like they both have their place. So I'll throw that out there as a, a to- tool that is often poo-pooed, but maybe shouldn't be. Dave Langer, that was for you. Um, yeah. I mean, those were both excellent points. So just to distill kind of what I've, what I'm hearing so far uh, from Ben, it was just being able to, to, to move quickly with the sense of urgency and map everything that you do to some business value. Uh, and then from Eric, it was a combination of um, kind of understand the bigger picture and the part you play in that big picture, as well as just being able to connect different ideas from different, different uh, disciplines. Um, so I, I love those points. Uh, Mark, what about you? So I was reading the comments and I completely missed the question. I'm sorry. Yeah. So the question from Akash here is that, you know, apart from just the hard skills, you know, tools of the trade, SQL, uh, Python, Tableau, so on and so forth. What are some key things or perspectives that a data scientist needs to have on a day-to-day basis? Um, but then there's also the, the, the question tacked on after that is any tips to develop that perspective? Um, I think my number one tip would be to go to Harpreet's podcast with Greg Coquillo because the one skill that I'm like really trying to refine right now is prioritization and trying to trying to like define like how do I connect it to a business use case and more importantly get buy-in for that. And I think the thing that really stuck out to me from that conversation you had with them was this idea of understanding not only the value but the risk associated with it and where the key metrics of of the of the business stakeholder that you're working with. And so I think if you can learn just to work with business stakeholders, speak their language and understand what like drives them or maybe like pauses them, um, you can come up with way better solutions and prioritize all the things on top of your plate to really push the needle forward. And I, I 100% like whatever content Greg puts out, I just soak up because I'm like, this is exactly the problem I'm having right now. Like just go find Greg and listen to him. Yeah, man. Greg's Greg's freaking awesome. Where is he today, man? Where are you at, Greg? Um, but yeah, like another, like I said, this this book has been amazing for me for that too. Like you combine Greg's perspective with with this, and you really start to develop a, a product sense. Um, Russell, let's hear from from you uh, on this as well, and then um, then we'll go to another couple of questions in uh, link from LinkedIn. If anybody else wants to uh, to add on to this, please uh, just let me know, and I'll. I'll uh, hand it over to you. Go for it, Russell. So I said in the chat, I, uh, very broadly, I think some of the key soft skills for any data scientist and in a more wider um, view, you know, any any role that's to do with data is tenacity and resilience because you're going to get a lot of um, uncertainty, a lot of rough seas to traverse in going through this. So being uh, set at the outset with a mindset to be tenacious and resilient and cope with those is going to be a, a distinct advantage. And then creativity also, I think, being able to look at something and uh, come up with an unorthodox approach that might be better under some circumstances, or at least give them um, appreciation so that you view maybe 10 different solutions and come up with the optimum one, uh, I think is a, is a really big advantage as well. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, shout out to Tom Ives, who's watching the live stream on LinkedIn, but not hanging out with us. Um, I know Tom's busy, so thanks for uh, for joining us, uh, Vivian. Anything to to add to to this particular point here? Um, the, there's another question he had. There's he's like three questions in one. Uh, there was a question about how to share, or do you have any best uh, day uh, any daily best practices for data scientists? Um, well, I just wanted to add as far as like developing some of these skills. Um, I would say just meet with everybody you can like get lots of different perspectives. I guess similar to what Eric said when he was talking about how he was meeting with a, you know, project manager and then next meeting having a meeting with somebody else like like meet with lots of different people, see how your your roles, you know, interact with each other and stuff like that. I guess that would be a good way to develop some of these soft skills and be able to yeah succeed in in that i love it man so many so many good answers and then you know i'll, I'll just tack on a little bit to that last question uh, can you share any daily best practices for data science just read read every single day read as much as you possibly can on things unrelated to data science or at least you know 
at least the things that address how data science is used in, in different, you know, kind of, kind of industries, read books like, uh, you know, Nate Silver's book, Signal and the Noise, uh, Calling Bullshit, Algorithms to Live By, um, you know, systems thinking or thinking in systems, um, just read, read a ton, uh, how to be strategic. Yes. How to be strategic is a epic, epic book. That is one that I have, uh, on hand. Shout out to Fred Pellard. He, uh, he autographed the book for me as well. He sent me an autographed copy all the way from, uh, from England. So let's go ahead and move on. There's a question in, uh, LinkedIn coming from Twinkle. It's a cool name, by the way, Twinkle. Uh, she wants to know, uh, the biggest challenge in data science is a feeling of overwhelm. Okay. Uh, sometimes it gets hard to find useful insight with dealing with a lot of data. How do you overcome that? Um, I think the first step is just to realize that there's not really always useful insight in data. Just because you have a lot of data doesn't mean that there's going to be anything actually useful in there. Um, so when you do explore data, I think you have to proceed with a very, very open mind because when you're exploring data, like that exploratory data analysis process is entirely between uh, you and the data. So just don't expect any outcomes, don't expect any useful insights and just kind of go in there with um, with, an, with an open mind and, and go for it. Uh, ben, what do you think? I, I agree. I think the, the data lake can be a data swamp with um, time suck alligators in it that can eat you. So um, I think sometimes people can be a little ambitious. So think of crawl, walk, run. I also have given up on data scientists being smart enough to really understand the domain completely. That's not really an insult. It's just the urgency to partner with a SME. And so if you're having a hard time finding things in the data, I would find out who's the human expert and see if you can have a session with them and talk about some of the stuff and, and maybe try to fish out how they would determine value rather than you. And I think that might inspire you. Thank you very much, Ben. Let's go to, uh, go to Vin and then we'll go to Mark and Eric after that. Uh, by the way, still taking questions. Um, so if you guys have questions on either one of the social platforms, let me know. I'm keeping an eye on all of them. Uh, Vin, go for it. I think the way that you avoid being overwhelmed is you realize that anything you didn't gather yourself or that wasn't gathered by somebody you trust who's capable who understands how data needs to be gathered in order to be usable in model development, in training. You can't trust any of that data. You don't know where it comes from. You don't have proper provenance behind it. You know, if you look at data that was gathered more than four years ago, you can almost just pick that up and throw it all in the trash. In most companies, it's more like anything 18 months or two years ago back, you can pretty much just forklift and get rid of because you can't trust it. And so that in, in my mind, that's usually where you can avoid being overwhelmed is because you have to look at the data and just say, this isn't, most of this is not going to be useful to me in building a model. Can I do analysis on it? Yeah, definitely. You can definitely analyze those massive data sets, but don't hit it with a model that that's not, you're not going to get anywhere and what you build isn't going to be reliable. And so really what you want to explore that massive data set with mind towards is what data should I be gathering? How should I be gathering it? What data could be available for me to gather? And that's what that massive data set is going to really tell you is it's going to give you some analysis of this thing that you're trying to measure this system or, or whatever it is that you're trying to build this, this outcome. And from there, that data is just going to tell you, okay, here's what I need to start gathering. And that's, that's how you should think about it. Don't think about, I'm going to throw five years worth of historical data or, you know, 2 trillion customer <laughs> records at this model and expect something cool to come out the other end. It's just, it doesn't work that way. Eric, is Eric frozen? He looks like he is frozen. Uh, let's go to Mark. Um, I think maybe before even like choosing the right data, even going a step before and like choosing the right problem to, to work on and specifically like, if you're going to choose a problem where the where if you only get an answer that there is success, you're probably setting yourself up for a lot of stress. Um, rather choosing a problem where you know where an answer of like something happens or like something's just not there, and that provides like information for the business stakeholders to make a decision. I feel like those are potentially better problems to work on because I think saying like, oh yeah, there's no relationship in this data, like this is a dead end. That can be really impactful for a business stakeholder because you can like reshift them from like wasting time um or if there is something then cool that's that's even bonus for that um i actually really talked to my manager about this recently my manager is like exceptional at picking the right problems to give context the the, the 11 months i've been there she's had ideas and four and four of them have 
become actual product features, which is like insane to, to like have that level of like home runs back to back to back. And I asked her like, how do you do this so well consistently? And she's basically said two steps. She talks to business stakeholders constantly and listens to their pain points and specifically listens to, I wish this was this, um, or this, this happened this way. And then from there, she like curates all these ideas and finds the patterns and like identifies the high impact idea. Then she identifies the data and builds a two week proof of concept to see if it's possible. And then from there, she's like off to the races. And so from the get go, she chose the right problem. So she's not overwhelmed by the different de- multiple ends. She's like, she curated a really good problem to work on and just, and then verified that you could work on it. And then in those two steps, she like got rid of a lot of the fluff and just zoning in on exactly what's prioritized. And thank you so much for sharing that, Mark. That's some great insight that actually answers the uh, follow-up kind of tack on question Tunkle had there about how to proceed with understanding a business problem. Uh, So thank you very much for that. Um, Eric, I, I can't tell if you're still frozen or not. No, you're not frozen. So go for it. Okay. I think I'm unfrozen. Uh, yeah. So I was just going to say one, uh, following what Vin said, like it doesn't always need to be like modeled. Something doesn't always need to be modeled. You might just be able to find interesting insights. I've been feeling that recently. And at the end of the day, maybe it's just not the best thing to do. And the other thing was if you're stuck, ask somebody else for their perspective on it. Like you don't get bonus points for doing it all by yourself. Like that's why there are other people around. Um, I had to do that a few days ago. I just have like, I just connected with one of my coworkers was like, Hey, before I show this to somebody else, like, does this make sense? Or am I just missing something big and I'm going to look stupid? And he's like, no, like basically you're seeing like a potential gain of like 0.3% of something, which in this case was, would be very, 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 very tiny. It's like, so no, you're, you're good. That, and so that was just like really helpful to just kind of get a sanity check from another person whose judgment I trust. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. There's a lot of good, good insights there. I'm definitely going to be enjoying running this back and, and taking out off, off the last few minutes. Thank you for those great questions, Twinkle. Hopefully you found uh, some value in those answers. I know I most certainly did. Um, any follow-up points from anyone, um, let me know. If anybody has questions, go ahead and let me know in the chat as well. Also, shout out to, uh, to Eric Gitonga. Uh, Eric and uh, J-Raj Parmar helped me tremendously with getting the votes cleaned and counted and um, set for the uh, for the Data Community Content Creators Award, which is live on LinkedIn on Tuesday. So both of those gentlemen um, came at it from two perspectives. Uh, had answers that matched each other. So had that uh, independent verification, third-party verification there. Uh, so you can't say I just voted for uh, for, for all my friends, guys. Uh, any other questions? I don't see any questions coming from LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitch. Um, any questions right here in the chat? Go for it if anybody wants. I was just going to share something with the group. Um, so that, that rock star at NVIDIA, I think her name is pronounced... Um, Enema. So she's like that deep learning AGI researcher. So I had an opportunity to talk to her last week and she was, I think sometimes with deep learning, we storytelling, we think it's getting better and better and better and better. And we have topics and there's all these great things we can tell you all sorts of things about how awesome our models were. And she was pointing out that if we do reach AGI, if we have AGI, there's no way that humans can understand it. Because you can imagine if I hand you like an 80 billion or a trillion parameter model that's initialized. And if it runs off, it'll actually be a product of this experience, just like we are. So imagine like if I was able to truly create a clone of me, they'd be two completely different people because of experience. So I, I never thought of that, that even if we create AGI, we all agree. And she also brought that up. She said, we might create it, but we will never all agree that we made it where I could like convince my parents uh, this year that I had AGI, but whether or not I convince anyone on the, everyone on the call, does that make sense? But I just thought those are two neat things. So first thing, we won't be able to understand it. Um, and then I forgot the final point, but anyway, it's been a long week. So, that's very interesting. So we won't be able to understand it, like you mentioned, because so many different billion parameters. Oh, and the only way to understand it is you'd have to experience what it experienced. So like the only way to be me is you have to experience what I did in my life. So I, those are two things I haven't thought of. I mean, it, it kind of makes makes sense in, in a way, right? Because like I, I don't know what it's like to be Ben Taylor. I don't know what it's like to be any one of you guys. And we've all had our set of experiences, although I'm sure Mark and I have very similar sets of experiences coming from like the exact same part of Sacramento. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Vin, what do you think? What do I think about just AI in general or AGI in general? Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of riffing off of uh, Ben's uh, 
insight there? I mean, I, I think we give ourselves too much credit. And I know this is the contrarian view on AGI, but we already have ML that's way smarter than people. And so if the bar is indistinguishable from us, AGI is going to be better than us. So why, why are we even doing this standard? We give ourselves a little bit too much credit. And, you know, we say AGI has to do all of these different hoops and jumps. And no, most people that you run into can't do all the hoops that we're putting in front of AGI, especially when it comes to, you know, generalizing to multiple problems. Most people are terrible at that. Most people are really horrible at going from one problem to a problem that they haven't seen a whole lot and being successful at it. And so when we talk about AGI, I'm thinking, you know, we give ourselves too much credit and think we're too good at the things that we're really not that great at. And so at some point, if we want to talk about AGI, it's like, why? Well, you know, what is the point of getting to AGI? Do we just want something that we can't tell the difference from us? I mean, is that really what we're, is that the goal? We just want us again? Because I mean, we can do that. Like we can have kids. So why don't we go for something that's a little bit more productive than this concept that we have of AGI? I just, like I said, I, I think we give ourselves too much credit and say that we're the bar. And then we set the bar 10 times higher than we actually are. And AGI is never going to reach that bar because we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to teach kids to be as smart as we want AGI to be. So how are we supposed to train the model to do that? We can't understand why kids do what they do. Why are we trying to get try to you want to explain AGI? I can't explain my daughter. I can't. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we put these standards out there and it just doesn't make any sense. AGI to me is one of those standards where it's like, we really need to be talking about something different because I don't understand where AGI fits in any sort of business context. I, I was going to say, I think, I think the hope for AGI would be you send, a, you send a droid to Mars and you actually don't have to tell it every single thing you have to do. Cause like the, you know, the, the bottleneck that we have or, you know, the, I forget how many minutes it takes. So I think it's more independence, but I, I don't know. I guess that there is, that is a gray line because if I have a useful droid that'll go do missions, you can imagine as that droid levels up in its education, eventually goes to college and then publishes 10,000 white papers in a day. Suddenly, like it, you can't deliver that next week, but you can imagine you can imagine the slow white to gray. And then eventually we just like, well, I, I don't really know when it happened. Not, not yes. that we'll be alive for anything that interesting. I, I was super <laughs> excited about the Mars, that, that, you know, having the Mars rover be completely autonomous where it's it's it knows the missions it's going to go do. And it doesn't really need you to drive it anywhere. It's like, I got this because that, that feels like the next version of like an autonomous vehicle. It's actually it's a little bit more curious, right? Autonomous vehicles aren't really curious. You know, and that's interesting curious. there. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, comment here from Tom, and uh, he's he's listening in on on LinkedIn. He said it's like the episode on Star Trek where Riker was split into two copies. They started to differ as soon as they had different experiences. Uh, and then Robert Robinson says, when the robots take over, our society will turn into the world described in Terminator or Wall-E. Robot revolution is already here, man. It's already happened. They're just packed in data centers for space, heat, and efficiency reasons. Um, the ro robots are already here, man. Uh, does not look like there's any other questions. There's a question that was uh, came in on YouTube from Farhan Nakfi, but he redacted it. His question was essentially one of the flavors of, uh, I'm a second year student in college trying to get into FANG. What projects must I do? Um, that's been covered on this podcast. Go, you know, go look at some previous episodes. We, we cover that topic quite frequently. Um, all of the projects, Eric says, just do all of them. No, just do two, man. Just do two. One to kind of showcase your your superpower, and one to kind of showcase your ability just to do stuff. Um, just do do things that are fun and interesting to you. Um, I think last week Eric was talking about you know just doing projects that were that were just interesting and fun and enjoyable for him. Um, so, uh, any other questions or comments from anybody here? Uh, shout out to everybody else in the in the chat. Florin, Naresh, Eric. Um, I'll throw something out there. Uh, so I don't know if any of y'all saw today, <clears throat> dear intern was trending on Twitter. Um, and then I also saw it posted on LinkedIn too. So since we are a lot of us, I mean, I, you know, I'm new in a job and making silly mistakes and a lot of people are like trying to break in and things like that. So yes, thank you. Yes. Florence, Florence hip like me and, uh, looking at dear intern. So dear intern is trending because an intern at HBO max accidentally sent out a test email 
template to a, a bunch of people from uh, on the HBO Max mailing list. And it was nothing like scandalous or anything. It was just a, a, a mistake made by a large scale company. And HBO Max like made a nice little tweet saying, you know, we're helping them through it, you know, no big deal. Um, but it just happened, right? And the whole thread, like a bazillion people are like, dear intern, all these crazy things that I did when I was an intern, or this person's like, I dropped a production database when I was a senior engineer. Like it happens. Like, fortunately, that's why we have backups, human resilience, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I just like it because one, it's just like embracing like humanity. Here we are, like just it's okay. Um, secondly, it also shows why it's important to plan for human error when you, you are doing anything that you're doing in your, in your work. And then also, it's also just really healthy. I was laughing so hard as I was reading through some of the examples. So, you know, get your, get, get a good reason to laugh and, and enjoy it. Yeah. I guess you could sum the moral of that story up as dear intern, you're human. It's okay. Exactly. Shit happens, man. Uh, More to come. Yeah, it's it's not like it's not like you recognized in job interviews. Like, hey, aren't you that intern that that just spammed the entire mailing list with a template? Uh, ben, let's go to you. I I was gonna. I had a story to share. So, dear intern, when I was working at Intel and Micron, I was working fab work at night. I realized I could work all night and ski all day. I'm like, this is genius. I'll work all night. I'll ski all day, and I'll sleep in the car on the way to go skiing with my friends. And one night, I caught. I made a mistake in the fab. So we're looking at images where the scanning electron microscope has measured lines. So it's done computer vision. It's measured lines on the circuits. And there was this distinction. Is this a gap or is it, is this a space or a line? What are we measuring? And I, it was, I was one of the engineers reviewing it and I made a decision that was the wrong decision. I come, came in the next day and they're like, oh shit, Ben, like you're in trouble. I think it, it ended up costing like 40 or $50,000, which is actually not, that sounds awful, but it, I knew people with like million dollar mistakes and they wrote me up for fatigue. So it was totally like me skiing all day and working all night. That, that isn't a good idea. But I just thought that was funny. Anyway, not not an intern mistake, but just like, come on, you can't ski all day. <laughs> can't ski all day and then not sleep and, you know, do heavy engineering. That's not healthy. Uh, I'd love to hear from anybody else here if they have any dear intern stories. I, I mean, I think uh, it might have been like more than five or six weeks ago, several weeks ago probably two, three months ago at this point, we had that one uh, session where we opened with just our biggest mess ups. So that, that I mean, that's, that entire episode was like a dear intern type episode. Um, but yeah, it looks like there are no other questions. Tom's still in LinkedIn chat for some reason. I don't know why he hasn't came into the room yet. Um, but I, I think we can begin to wrap it up, guys. Hope you guys get a chance to uh, tune into the podcast episode that was released today. Jamie Woodhouse talked about sentientism. Uh, I was kind of all over LinkedIn live today so hopefully you got a chance to hear me just rant and ramble about things um definitely not as uh as og as you know some of the folks here ben vin um i love hearing you guys stories man i love hearing about all the crazy stuff you guys do like mark all your stories uh yeah, it's cool man it's it's, it's, it's uh, somebody asked a question uh in in one of the the live streams it was something to the effect of like what did you learn from experts that you didn't learn or didn't know already and my response was just what mistakes not to make because they're just sharing with us the things that they've done or they're sharing their their experiences so we can kind of learn from that so uh you know i think that's true um definitely definitely comes through here in this session all right so it does not look like there's any other questions if we've installed enough friends thank you so much for hanging out appreciate you taking time out of schedule to be here today um don't forget, tune into the pod podcast, catch me on some of the live streams. Um, and um, again, man, happy to have you guys here. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Harpreet, for doing this. Oh, absolutely, See you guys. man. It's my pleasure.